Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this month I am honored to have two guests. That's right, we've doubled the number of guests in just one month. Uh, With me, as always, is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. I'm Michael Lilienthal. And this month we have a very special guest, uh, Josiah Willis. Special. (laughs) Say hi to the people, Josiah. Hi, everyone. I'm Josiah. I'm not changing the title of the podcast for you, just so you know. We're we're sorry. (laughs) This is a hostile takeover. Um, Okay. So... Uh, in addition to that change, we're going to throw a second change at you because, gentle listener, we trust that you are very intelligent and uh, adaptable, quick on your feet. We basically love you, uh, and lots I would like to ask you out before Michael does. Ha! Dibs. Ah, dang it! Dibs. Come um, on. Anyway, so... Uh, I'm not going to get asked out yet. Because <laughs> I'm not a listener. <laughs> you're, you're also... You're, you're just a talker. So, yeah, you don't... If I I can get some words in. (laughs) Which uh, probably won't happen, to be honest. Hmm, Um, Fine. Really, (laughs) in fact, we didn't plan for you to to say anything on this podcast. Um, So what is my role? No, the point was we wanted to have a third body in the room so the listener would have a sense of there being three bodies, but only two voices. Right. Oh. Because three voices is just too much. Yeah, you know, they say two's company, three's crowd. So you're using me for my bulk. Yeah, for my fat. For your no, well, for the rest of you too. Oh, we're using you for your body. Is, yep. is what we're saying. Um, oh, good. You're basically eye candy on this audio. Yeah. And podcast. you're using my body. Yes. Um, now shut up. Stop <laughs> doing that. <laughs> Sorry, I have to wait to do that till the scotch gets into us. Um, so we're we're throwing a second curveball at you, also, gentle listener, in that. You know, when we first started this podcast, Michael and I figured it'll be maybe a 60-minute podcast, 75-minute podcast. Yep. And the first episode happened, and it was like 90 minutes. Right. And we're like, yeah, yeah it's, it's okay. A, you know, it's a it's an intro episode. It's an opener. We're getting everything out there. You know, it's like the 90-minute the special opening to a TV show, except right. a TV show like anyone pays attention to on like, this podcast. Right. Nobody listens. Right. <laughs> um, what? Were you talking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not even our own podcast listens to itself. <laughs> We've gone meta. Let's take a step back. We, we, we've been meta this whole time. Yeah, I don't know that's where you've true. Been. That's true. Um, anyway, so yeah, that happened. And then like the next episode, we were like, all right, we'll keep it, we'll keep it shorter. Nope, it was longer. Yep. And then I believe our last episode was, was the, the longest, longest yet. yet. <laughs> yeah. So um, that being said, like, I know I personally like struggle to pay attention to things that are more than about 15 seconds. seconds. <laughs> that is what I was going to say. I hate you. Um, so... Yeah, we, so we figured, you know, uh, do unto others and all that. So we uh, we're gonna try to What's split that? our episodes each each month You're and a just uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> just come out with with uh, hour long episodes or so, um, and we'll see how that goes. So yeah, this will be the first of two episodes in which we will be discussing the book that we announced at the end of last month's episode. Thank you for holding that up for the viewers at home, Michael. It's a pretty, um, pretty book, isn't it? It Take is a look. very pretty oh, book. Look this book. Sort of hey, I can see it. black and white. <laughs> um, yeah. Josiah is having a revelation here. 
Anyway, they actually do stuff. <laughs> the book is called Till We Have Faces. They actually have physical objects by C.S. Lewis. And I'm already, we haven't even gotten into the scotch yet, and I'm already starting to think that, like, this is a highly inappropriate context to be discussing this book. Except my one, like, caveat saving grace here is that I feel that if C.S. Lewis were alive and we said, would you please come and drink scotch and discuss your book with us? Oh, he would be all over it. He would it. be all over and it. And he would bring cigars. And he would bring cigars and he would mm. probably be flirting with the listener as much as we do. It, it, absolutely. So I like to think we'd be chummy. I, I, I do like to think that. And um, that may have been a long-standing sort of daydream of mine but that's a different different point altogether anyway save that for your daydreams podcast yes uh, the one that i broadcast in my head <laughs> on recording equipment that i dreamed um that's not what you normally do i have no comment on oh that. so uh yes uh this this month's book is till we have faces um, and so, as always, like we can't recap the entire book because no. that would take too long. So, but this is a very uh, controllable medium. You can, uh, you know, pause this podcast. You can hit stop on your tape player that you're playing back this podcast on, and you know it will stop. We literally, like, when you hit stop on your tape player, we literally freeze until you come back and What's hit play this again. What's tape player you speak of? That's how people listen to podcasts, Josiah. I don't know what you're talking about. No, Us just... usually you pull up the needle when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have you have the uh, the iPod 1.0. Um, <laughs> our listeners are very with it and have the iPod 2.0 that has tape. Uh, we'll explain later. Oh. Anyway, so we're going to just stop right now and let all of you go listen. Brady, three, no, two, one. No, not listen. Go, go read the go book. Go read the book. Sorry, yeah. I, I don't know what words are. So. <laughs> That's uh, a problem. On three, we'll, we'll stop and let you listen. Three, two, two one. And we're back. All right. So, now what'd you think of the book? Now, now it's our turn to listen to you. What'd you think of the book? Oh, that's actually wrong. Nope. It's completely you're, wrong. You're, stop. Uh, stop. Did you hear them? This, just is, say? this is like a sad version of Blue's Clues. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to the audience, and then you just go on with whatever you were going to go with anyway. <laughs> You've exposed just us, that. Josiah. We did, in fact, like sit down in a room before conceiving this podcast and say, what can we do that's Blue's Clues, <laughs> but where we drink? See, but the thing is, I like to think we're more like Dora the Explorer. Or half of it's in Oh, I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> and we haven't even gotten to the scotch yet. Also... No, we're like ten minutes in. What the heck? Do you know what? We don't have glasses. That is a problem. Do you expect me to drink like a dog out of my hands? <laughs> On that note, I'm going to go get us all glasses. Okay. This is a woefully ill-prepared podcast. <laughs> Now that Ethan's gone, we can have a real conversation. <laughs> what is happening? You guys did stop recording while I was gone, right? Like, you haven't been saying crap about me. The person who's providing you the scotch. We no! love you! You're the greatest! What I thought. I like glasses. Alright, so for this month's scotch, I decided to do something a little bit different from what we've been doing. Um, you know, for the first three podcasts, all of them, I believe, were new scotches that we had never tried before. Mm -hmm. um, so this month, I was feeling a little bit, I don't know if you'd call it nostalgic or what, but I, I just wanted to revisit this particular scotch. So this is actually one of my favorite scotches, which I have already had. 
Um, it is called Old Putney. Uh, old Pulteney. Pulteney. Um, and for the one Scotch aficionado listening to this, um, I did not look up the pronunciation of that, so I probably just mangled it. But in my defense, uh, Scottish is nuts. Even more <laughs> nuts than English, so probably would have gotten it wrong either That's way. That's a now, nice looking bottle. Right? So the, the, uh, the uh, cardboard box or whatever that the bottle comes in has a nice... Uh, picture of a sailing ship with a bird on it um and uh the back says that the pulteney distillery lies on the rugged northern coast of scotland and is the most northerly distillery on the mainland established in the port of wick in 1826 this fine single malt is steeped in seafaring history back then the windswept distillery was only accessible by sea and as one of the busiest herring ports in the world many of the distillery workers were also fishermen Today, Old Pulteney Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, all of those words were capitalized, <laughs> is created using the same traditional methods of the 1800s. The copper mm. wash still, in particular, is a source of fascination to visitors due to the absence of a swan neck. Legend has it that when the still was delivered, it was too tall for the still house, and the manager simply decided to cut the top off. <laughs> this shape, known as a smuggler's kettle, contributes to the dis- mm. distinctive style of the whiskey has also influenced the unique shape of the bottle. So, uh, yeah, the bottle um, is kind of, you know, stout and... Yeah, sort of stout and uh, squashed. Wide. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Old Pulteney, according to the box, is, is known as the maritime malt. So, mm. a lot of, lot of sort of seafaring <clears throat> uh, stuff going on with this malt. Now, the bottle itself, as Michael said, is, is sort of squished and, and, uh, and sort of... Sort of uh, Stout, Stout, sort of like someone you'd expect to see on the deck of a ship, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a low center Having of gravity. Having their sea legs and... And so forth, <laughs> yeah. Um, it has a little map of, of northern Scotland, and it shows in a little dot where the where distillery way up north. is. And it is just like as north as you can get while still being Norway. attached to the, to the mainland. Yeah. So this is like Norwegian scotch. This is almost like Norwegian scotch. <laughs> Let us emphasize the almost. Almost. <laughs> Because it's Scotch, Michael. Basically, Norwegian Scotch. No, it's not though. <laughs> so it's um, like because there are distilleries, there are Scotch distilleries north of that because there are some in the islands. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. So, um, we so, go over the the rules here. Yeah, we should go over the rules. I like rules. So, our our main rules: one, no one mentions the Scotch after the Scotch is poured. Anyone mentioning the Scotch suffers the punishment. punishment. Josiah, do you know what the punishment is? I know what your punishments are. That's, that's <laughs> that sounded particularly insidious. <laughs> insidious enough. Okay. Um, I'll take that. So, so good. That's that's ominous. Second rule, um, no one is allowed to mention anyone's mother. Yes. And both of these rules, we're, we're very much in the spirit of the rule and not the letter. So, yep. you know, if I, if I say, like, my happy juice, like, and it's obvious what then I'm talking about. Then obviously like, he's talking still... about Josiah's mother. Right. Whoa! <laughs> Wait, did, did you already lose? No, because it hasn't. the scotch hasn't been poured yet. That's I the think start. I have the punishment tonight. <laughs> I okay, think I, I think I, think we'll I might him, have to think about that. We'll have to we let him get to... away with that. Oh, wait, so are we, like, actually know. going to spank Michael or something? Because that would be... I never um, said that was my punishment. 
<laughs> I never said it wasn't either. Oh, but... I mean, you mean that's his reward if he does win, um, and that's why no one wins on the show. I see the the addition of Josiah here has a uh, um, unburied some things. All right, so I'm going to ceremonially open the scotch. Ooh. And Josiah, as as guest, you get first pour, and after this, the oh, rules kick in. Wonderful. So. Cheers. Slancha. L'chaim. All right. Well, so, how'd you guys like till we have faces? I quite enjoyed it. I I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's been quite a while since I've read Lewis. And I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff in it is in keeping with a lot of his other works. Yeah. Um, and I mean... For me, for me personally, it took a little while to really get into it and to really be like, oh yeah, I'm really liking this. But um, at certain points, then um, you hit some of those critical moments in the novel, and it's just like, okay, there's some really good stuff happening here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, and it is the, a lot of the themes from <clears throat> Lewis's other books, both fiction like, and nonfiction. Yeah, his um, signature classics are all over the place in here. I tried to write yeah. down any time there was a theme that was connected to like mere Christianity mm-hmm. or a uh, great divorce. Right. Uh, and they're, they're everywhere. And obviously a mm-hmm. lot of the themes from like Narnia. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, yeah. Um, even the space trilogy. But out of out of his fiction, which, you know, you count Narnia, you count the space trilogy, mm-hmm. um, could count the great divorce. Yeah, uh, which you is can make an a, argument for it. An essay in in fiction clothing, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know some of those other ones. Out of I would argue that out of all of his fiction, this is his finest. Um, I'm with you there. Just as far as the quality of the writing, um, the it's, the dis- mm. distillation of the characters mm-hmm. and the ideas. It's, it's mature. Yeah. Uh, yes. Part of it. Like, yes. This this is a very mature work. Uh, you know, you've got Narnia, and you think that's kids stuff, which it, right. it is true well, to an extent. It's still like very edifying for an adult to read as well sure. i i would say that i like this better than his than i mean i would say that i think it's a finer work than um narnia but i have a special place in my heart for his screw tape letters mm, yeah. those are mm-hmm. those are really good that's true though again you know if, if you're being strict about fiction screw tape is almost more of like essays with a conceit yeah you know it's not really yeah. a, a novel per se i suppose but at the same time, I would say, you know, I would agree it's very much sort of on that level of craft with screw tape, where it's very honed and very, mm-hmm. very um, mm-hmm. sort of like a, a fine, fine-edged blade. What, what you were saying, uh, though, Josiah, about um, it taking a little while to take off, um, it was the, the pacing of this book is very interesting. Yeah, um, that's something I picked yeah. up on too. It, it, it really starts strongly. out just really slow. It, it kind of eases you into this this picture of this fantasy world that's kind of the the fantasy trope where you've got this girl who's in this fantasy world and she's going to be the hero and she's narrating this and she's got right. this mentor and there's the evil king and uh, almost and like a fairy tale kind of fairy tale esque yeah. sort of thing and it sets it up that way uh, and then all of a sudden the tone shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and changes, and I think that comes when Psyche is born. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's mm-hmm. that's really when the tone just completely changes, um, and and then you get a new story that's that's starting there, uh, and then that story continues for a while, and then all of a sudden that one ends kind of abruptly, 
and uh, with with psyche getting banished um, uh, and to, to go wander that's you know that ends and then all of a sudden it's just Orwell the the narrator um, mm-hmm. dealing with the the fallout from that and right. she and mm-hmm. that's the theme that or that's the the tone and the pace uh, from the moment psyche gets banished until the end of part one. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's almost like yep. three or four different sort of styles that this book goes through. Yeah. It mm-hmm. almost feels like an anthology mm-hmm. in a in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which may be appropriate to the conceit of like, you know, this this being her memoirs or something mm-hmm. that she's written at the end of her life and looking back on the the different periods and so forth. Well, and I mean, the entire second book, which is really only like what a fourth, if even, yeah. of the book, yeah. just it's it's like almost pages. <laughs> it's almost more like an epilogue, but a lot happens. Right, and it's an epilogue. So much that, happens that yeah. changes your entire conception of the rest of the book. It yeah. does. Well, and I mean, it's it's what shifts her character to ultimately where it needs to go. Right. Which is kind of one of the themes of the whole book: the shifting of character, the changing. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I. I, I when when I write in my books, which I do a lot, um, <laughs> when there's a change, uh, I just use the Greek word delta mm-hmm. for change, and I, or or the, the letter, and I just right. put that in. It's a triangle. So there's mm-hmm. a triangle in the margin. There are so many triangles that, in the margins of this book. That's why there are so many triangles in my old couch from college. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, Michael roomed with me, and. He would fall asleep on my couch with a pen in hand, um, <laughs> writing in his books, and there were many ink blotches on my couch by the end of that year. It was ridiculous. One of these days, I'm going to be famous, and you can sell that couch for a million dollars. I didn't even sell that couch. I <laughs> gave it to someone. I don't even know who has it anymore. Someone out there, if you have a couch with a bunch of ink blots on it, it save with, it. With terrible 70s upholstery. And... and... I feel like this is going to be a description of like 700 couches. <laughs> so if you gonna, ever do get be, famous, you'll gonna have be kicked like, off a sort of rat race. It's gonna yep. be. Well, it's gonna be like. Death. It's gonna be like the old or the old indulgences where everybody has nails from the cross. Yeah. Everybody yeah. has <laughs> Michael's couch from college. <laughs> Mark Twain said in *The Innocence Abroad* that he had seen enough nails from the true cross to build a house. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, when he traveled in the Holy Land. That's something that Luther said too about yeah, the pieces of wood from the cross. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I believe he said something about enough nails from the cross to shoe every horse in Saxony mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Yeah. Yep. Well, these nails look old. Anyway. <laughs> um, yes. Mm-hmm. So, what a, while we're while we're on this this whole sort of structural idea, um, one of the things that struck me was. You know, it's a very psychological novel that's very oh. engrossing. Yeah, psych, psych, psychological. It you know, and I don't, I would not put it past Lewis to have done that on purpose. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it came out, I, I was thinking about this, this, this novel came out, 56. forget exactly when, yeah, 56. Um, so at that time, you know, there was a lot of, like, the historical epic was a really big thing in mm. publishing. Um, you know, people like uh, uh, Leon Uris and James Clavell, um, you know, were writing these massive, like, thousand page, twelve hundred page sort of historical fiction, you know, epics. Um, you know, and this is, would be around the time that, like, The Ten Commandments came out with Charlton Heston, right. the film, and Ben Hur came out and around this time. Um, so the big 
expansive, broad yeah, things. Yeah, very sort of lush historical yeah. epic was a thing. Um, and I don't know anything about the publishing history of this this book, but you know, it seems to me like Lewis's publishers, when they got this idea, oh, it's you know sort of set in ancient Greek times and it has that patina to it like you know they could have been thinking well this is Lewis doing you know one of these these lush historical epics um but you know one one example of where Lewis is totally not doing that at all um when Psyche does get left on the mountain and there's this great ceremony and there's a procession Mm -hmm. you know out of the city and there's pageantry and there's there's a the priest gets in his mask and and everyone you know if 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 uh you know if, if Leon Uros or someone was writing this it would be it would be a 50 page scene or a 100 page scene and you know all of these great set pieces mm-hmm. but in this book you you hear about this second hand yeah it's mm-hmm. like 10 you pages hear, at the Oral doesn't see yeah. it she hears yeah. about it from she hears about people. it and it's it's mm-hmm. almost it's not dismissed like it's there mm-hmm. as a as a chink in the story but it's mm-hmm. really not focused on or described as vividly which is mm-hmm. a little bit um interesting being that it comes after like a 25 page conversation yes mm-hmm. it's immediately after psyche and and Orul have their have their uh uh you know big big conversation and fight and, and fight and and you know which is obviously the last thing you do before you send your sister off to be killed right you fight um, with her and right yeah. uh mm-hmm. and you know so so well, it's, it's an interesting like the proportions are mm-hmm. are very much not what you'd do if you were trying to sort of create a, a sensational book or a spectacle. Well, and I mean the the whole the whole thing. I mean it's it's a retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and right. I mean it's from this other perspective. It's from the it's the background story behind mm-hmm. the myth right. or behind the great legend that I mean, if if you were to follow the line of literature that you were talking about, you would be focusing on the epic. You would be focusing right. on the legend. This is the this is the character that people forgot about. Or mm-hmm. in the case of the book, as you find out later, the character that was skewed, wrong, mm. and jilted. Right. And yeah. It's about a reaction to that myth. It's uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this person is observing the myth in actuality and how she reacts to it is this story Mm -hmm. um, and how it messes with her. Which is interesting because that makes it almost a very modern book. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of, you know, sort of more recent takes on on hero stories have have sort of been that. Um, And, you know, you think of like the... um, There was a film that came out about, about Moses a few years ago that sort of had the voice of God being like this, this sort of nuts or like it implied Moses was maybe schizophrenic or something mm-hmm. was going on like that um you have the the movie Noah that came out a couple of years ago that you mm-hmm. know it was sort of Noah's character comes into into very great question in that movie whether he's a hero or a psychopath or whatever um you know and and even more recent retellings of like the Troy myth or mm-hmm. or various things um movies like that and this this comes through in literature too though I can't think of any examples off the top of my head of course but um you know there, there's sort of part of postmodernism has been this great like questioning of hero myths um mm-hmm. and you know is is the the great hero are they uh, um really that great or you know is something else going on mm-hmm. um and it's interesting that that lewis is the one who's almost sort of ahead of that 
that wave. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, this is this is a book that could have been written 50 years later. Yeah. And it just seemed relevant and seemed sort of with the times. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's it, it strikes me too that this is all. I mean, obviously, it's born from C.S. Lewis's mind, but it strikes me that, like his other fiction works that are that you could argue are highly allegorical, this is also mm-hmm. highly allegorical. Yes. Well, of and course, absolutely. His own mind on opposite sides here, just dialoguing with himself. Right. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Is kind yeah. of like when in, in that chapter seven, I, and I just found it where uh, that's that's the chapter where Oral and Psyche have that argument. Right. Um, and I wrote under seven, I wrote in which Psyche and Oral dialogue like C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that is, yeah. well, that is I mean, very much a part of... Go ahead, Josiah. Well, I and I mean, that I was, was Lewis's life, his whole struggle <laughs> with... Um, his worldview and how he um, associated with everything, with his um, view of Christianity, his mm-hmm. view of um, all of that on a philosophical standpoint. And I mean, this book is highly philosophical. Right. Very. And, yeah. and it's it's interesting because, you know, Orwell and, and her mentor both sort of, you know, shoot holes in each other's, in each other's worldviews. Um, but it's not like some sort of, like in, in a, in a, uh, platonic dialogue or or some of these other old old sort of dialogues where like one side is clearly right right it's very much a you know i mean you Which, could call it mm-hmm. like a dialectic if you wanted mm-hmm. but um yeah. it's very much you know both sides have their benefits and both sides have their flaws um, which I, th- I, you know, I think is is much more skillful to be able to pull off mm-hmm. than just mm-hmm. having a dialogue for the sake of proving one mm-hmm. one person right. And I love how he does it with different characters throughout mm-hmm. the book. And mm-hmm. I mean, one of the big ones that you get is pitting Fox against Bardia. Yes. Um, and the play back and forth. And I mean, the after she goes and sees that Psyche is alive and. And Psyche tells her that she is married to this god and that they're living in this castle and she can't see any of it and she must think, okay, right. she's definitely mad or is there more going on than this? Then Bardia and, both, and Fox both give her very different worldviews on it. Fox right. is very much the rational, mm-hmm. well, obviously you can't see it, so obviously she's mad. And Bardia is more of the spiritual, well, we can't know the things about the gods, and right. how can we? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we should be going with that. And she herself is struggling with this. That, right? that dichotomy of yeah. the, the the very rational and the, the like emotional. The, the fox, uh, her mentor, frequently criticizes the priests. Uh, mm-hmm. For the the hyper emotionality of their worship and everything, right. and mm-hmm. the, it's it's all about what people feel about it. And uh, Orwell is trapped in the middle of these, and uh, early on especially, she's tending toward the fox's side, mm-hmm. which again mm-hmm. is part of that trope of the fairy tale, right. uh, where she's got this mentor. And so in the fairy tale, the mentor is right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where you start reading this book mm-hmm. that the fox is right. Right. Uh, but then. <laughs> but then. <Yeah. laughs> which is a very yeah. you know it's a very. Uh, Again, a very modern thing to have been writing in in 1956, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, the the mentor is sort of a an archetypal character, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that you can find out throughout history and and throughout literature. But you know, again, I guess I'm just on a movie thing today. But you know, uh, every Disney movie that came out after 1956 has a mentor who is right. Yeah. You know, Star Wars has a bunch of mentors who are right, and the heroes don't always listen to the mentor, but when they don't... Then things go wrong. Then things <laughs> go wrong, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. um, which is almost, you know, sort of subverting that trope before it's as much of a trope, which is interesting. I mean, maybe that's mm -hmm. not completely fair because there are plenty mm -hmm. of mentors in like Arthurian legend and so forth who mm -hmm. are also always right. But... Yeah, I'm I'm reading Once in Future King by T.H. White right now, and yeah, yeah. Um, Merlin throughout mm -hmm. that is just always the voice of this is right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. yeah. Well, like, yeah, the voice of reason. Uh, mm -hmm. You could, which like in uh, which, the which Lord Fox of the Flies and stuff, literally and... is the voice of reason. Fox mm -hmm. is literally, yeah, exactly, literally the voice of reason in the truest sense. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, he's 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 a Greek person who has been taken out of his lands, and I mean, he represents Greece. He represents yes, right. their line of thinking. The which Lewis, um, of course, was yeah. very steeped in. Oh yeah. You know the Greek classics and so forth. I mean, Lewis, Lewis was a medievalist. But, you know, medieval literature largely drew on sort of the Greek and Roman classics. So, you know, Lewis would have been very familiar. And that, you know, that may be why Fox, as, as sort of a historical personage, rings probably the truest out of, out of mm -hmm. maybe any of the characters. Mm -hmm. um, Bardia is one of my favorite characters in this whole thing. He's yeah. so good. Yeah. And you don't realize how good he is until he's dead. Right. Yeah. And, dude... Um, one of the best conversations in the whole book is between his wife and, and overall the yeah, queen. Yeah, at yes. the end, yeah, oh, that man. conversation just made me die on the inside. Break my right. heart. Ugh. Can we talk about how often this book breaks your heart? Oh, <laughs> yes. I think I did yeah. put up put up a Facebook status that mm -hmm. said like, you know, this this book is like if you took the death of Dobby from Harry Potter, but if it happened every, every 50, 50 pages. pages. Yeah, and, and it's I, about that much of an interval. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it really is. Have... Except, and I, I think I, I wrote that just before I had read part two, and I feel like in part two it's like every, every two pages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or every two pages. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, part two just rips mm -hmm. your gut out. So, yeah. like, you... You, you made an interesting point recently, I think in our first episode, in fact, about how there's that theory out there that every novel is a work of forensic fiction. Where yeah, and that's absolutely what this is. This is deliberately that yeah. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I kept thinking about that. That she... was um, from a book that I read last year called uh, The Novel, A Biography, and I forget the name of the... The yeah. author um but that's a brilliant book like for anyone who's looking for like an 1100 page work of of literary criticism to read um that should be the top of your list um you know because there are a yeah. lot of people who like to read thousand page mm -hmm. books about literary criticism but the, his whole thesis the the author's whole thesis in the novel a biography which he takes the novel from its very infancy in greece and roman in the middle ages and he literally apparently has read every novel, um, <laughs> but he gives, you know, a major sort of highlights from, from sort of Gargantua and Pantagruel up through, you know, 2010 or whenever this book came out. And that's, that's his whole thesis throughout the book is that the novel essentially in its purest form is a defense testimony. Mm -hmm. It's whoever mm -hmm. the main character is or characters telling you what they did and why they did it which is you know literally what sort of a story is especially in a novel form but that that is one for one you know if you assume reality on the part of the characters that's what a defense testimony is mm -hmm. uh, you telling know, their story from their perspective and yeah mm -hmm. telling what they did and defending why they did that you know here's well, here's the reasons i had for doing well this. and i mean the 
this book takes it a step further. She's not defending, she's prosecuting. Yeah. yeah. She she is yeah. accusing. And she, throughout she... throughout the entire text, she's um she she keeps saying to the reader, um, judge for me on this. Judge right. between, judge the, between gods and me. me and the gods. Right. And I mean the whole for the whole last page of the book, then she's just laying her full case out again. She says, right. Yet at last, after infinite hindrances, I made my book and here it stands. Now you read, judge between the gods and me. And she lays out her whole argument all over again and has just had it with the gods and feels that, I mean, they are being the most unfair and the vilest of yeah. all creatures. And, and she, she writes as a defendant, sort of, here. Mm -hmm. she's, she's definitely accusing the gods, but she writes as though she's a defendant in the right. whole first part. Mm -hmm. And then when you come to the second part, you see that flipped entirely on its head. Mm -hmm. right. And yep. the gods themselves say, you're accusing us, so we'll, be, we'll sit here on the defense stand, and right. you mm -hmm. accuse us, read your, read your yeah. complaint against us, and... Mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, and it puts everything into perspective, and that's another right. theme: the, this idea of perspective. Uh, well, in, here. Oh in, in a sense, <laughs> this the you know the the second part functions like this. This whole book is almost like an O. Henry story, and the entire <laughs> second part functions as like what O. Henry would do in maybe the last two paragraphs. <laughs> kind of, of the foil. Yeah. For the rest yeah, of the book, where it where it turns the entire rest of the story mm -hmm. on its head. You thought you knew what this is about. Nope. <laughs> no. yeah. And it is, you know, it, it almost is like if you had a, a sort of fairly good but maybe long-winded prosecutor to, to give you the first 250 pages, and then you mm -hmm. had like a really sharp defense attorney to just completely Stand up destroy and say, that nope. in, in like a third yeah. of the time or a fourth of the time. And it's absolutely remarkable. Uh, that idea of it being completely flipped on its head there, mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it shows Orwell just what she's been doing. Right. Uh, and I, I wrote at the end of part one, before I read part two, I'm going to read just the, the two sentences that I wrote here. She uh, At the end of part one, page 250, then I wrote, As a mortal, she hates the hiddenness of divine things and must see a face if she is to relate to it. Therefore, she writes to bring to light, as she thinks, the truth, and to create a face to put onto the gods, which is exactly what she's doing. She she can't see the gods. It's impossible to see the gods. That's her problem. So she writes what she thinks the gods look like. She writes the face onto the gods. Right. Here. Is, is this an appropriate time to bring up faces? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Segway. <laughs> okay, because faces is like the biggest thing in Wait, this book. Is it? I, where, I, where do you get that? I Defend that statement. Okay, okay. Now you're not, on the defense it's, stand. Okay, it's not, <laughs> it's not the biggest thing in the book. No, no I actually, no. I actually but, might agree with you. But, I think I do too. I mean, I mean, on a, on a, on a, I mean, shallower level, then I would agree. Absolutely, it's about the faces. On allegorical right. level, then I mean, it's all about belief. And mm -hmm. the belief... And the idea of belief is entirely associated with the theme of faces here, because how can you really know something and put your faith and trust in something if you don't have that face, right. if you don't have that visual cue, if you don't right. have that tangible evidence? And I mean, that theme is played over and over and over again in this book, um, whether it's the she can't see the palace or people can't see her face 
or people or you don't know what unget looks like yes. um right away right away at page whatever page two or three when they bring up unget and that she is formless yeah and nobody right. knows what she looks like i was like this is big and i know <laughs> that this is big yep. right and yeah yeah and notice too when you get to the very end of the book page 308 she still doesn't see the face of the gods Right. Mm-hmm. Like she, she's in this divine courtroom and here, gets, and yeah. uh, you are also psyche. Came a great voice. I looked up then. She looked up then, and it's strange that I dared, but I saw no god, no pillared court. Instead, all of a sudden, she's back. I, I was in the palace gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, she leaves this divine court and is back in the mortal world. She doesn't see the right. face of the god, yeah. but she's had a complete change, even though she hasn't seen them. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I mean, of course, the whole theme of. Believing without seeing is oh, yeah. the biggest Lewis Lewis theme ever. You right. you go to Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. That's what the whole beginning is about. With do right. we believe do we believe Lucy or not? Yes. And, I mean, and I mean during during that whole bit that chapter about I can't see the castle. I right. th- I couldn't help but think that whole chapter. This is Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe all over again. Yep. Though, this is... <laughs> though at the same time, I agree with you. Um, but also, like like I said earlier, I think this is Lewis at his most subtle and his most honed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's more... It's 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 finer in its detail. It's it's mm-hmm. more honed than in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Because mm-hmm. you know, in, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's that brilliant bit where uh, um, Lucy and, and Peter go to the professor after after, uh, or I mean, I mean Susan, Susan and Peter yep. rather go to the professor mm-hmm. after Lucy has made these claims, and the professor says, "Well, either your sister is uh, is lying." Um, she's just straight up making up a story or she's insane and she believes something that is clearly ridiculous or the only other option is she's telling the truth. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think and there, sort of... you've got a voice of reason character yeah, right. yeah. who is right. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Whereas, I mean, you have, you have two voice, you have two voices that are telling her different things right. in well, this book. And, and the thing is, you know, this is pretty easy, uh, uh, delineation with Lucy in a sense because you know they argue like well she's gotten so upset when we didn't believe her like if she was just lying it probably wouldn't have gotten to this point she pretty clearly is not insane but like we can't believe her you know which is mm-hmm. which is um an interesting conundrum all all to itself but here uh you know it's it's much more subtle is is it psyche really you know is. psyche is is clearly very well fed you know, in this in this state, and she's, it's even explicitly stated happy. by Orwell that she doesn't look crazy. Yeah. There's no mm-hmm. part of her that seems yeah. insane at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But still, I can't believe it. <laughs> but I can't yep. believe it. You know, and then mm-hmm. and then the fox does come up with really sort of a rather plausible explanation at the same time. Yeah. You know, the, mm-hmm. the okay, so some some thief like stole her, and you know has been whispering things yep. in her ears, and, and she's like, been delirious and. And yeah, and so she believes that yeah. she's so she's here. She's it's seen not that things. she's lying. It's not that she's crazy. It's that she's deceived. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, you've got this external blame that can be placed. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and and the fact that that the one thing that both Barty and Fox agree upon is that this thing, whatever is her husband or what she's calling her husband, is not a good thing. Sure. Right. Well, and I I doubt that though. Uh, she, she says that explicitly, but when you go back and look at Bardia's reaction. Uh, that that interpretation of what Bardia thinks comes entirely from Orwell. 
Uh, Vardy okay. never states that explicitly. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, he just reacts with silence, which is like, well, I don't know. Like, maybe. Right. It, it could just um, as easily be that, you know, this mm-hmm. is something... Which Bardia has said explicitly, this is something beyond my ken. Like, yep. I can't mm-hmm. even have an opinion about this. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. He doesn't say explicitly that it is something terrible. He okay. might think that. But even but if he, also he did, might not, he would not have told Orwell, you know, go, like, right. mess with it. He yeah, would say, yeah, right. no, stay away. Yep, yep. And Orwell's, uh, when she brings that to Psyche mm-hmm. and says they both agree on this, that's Orwell's invention of Bardia's perception. Right. Um, which, again, that's that's Orwell's whole thing. She puts faces on people. Right. Uh, or in uh, the, the identities on people, if you want to connect faces on identities here, that she creates the identities of others right. in order to fit herself. Right. Uh, here and what she wants out of these things and that's ultimately what she's judged for that she's interpreting the gods according to herself right um and and psyche too when she comes to realize that um she her love for psyche is in fact not love but selfishness and she's harming psyche right um by her what she calls love uh and uh, that that discovery of her own self Mm-hmm. Uh, the the fundamental attribution error. Uh, that's a, another one of my shorthands that I put in just about every book I read is FAE uh-huh. for fundamental attribution error. Right. Uh, the, that whole concept that as an individual, it is far easier for you to recognize the faults in others than in yourself and far right. easier to recognize the good in yourself than in others. Uh, and Orwell embodies that perfectly. Sure. Um, kind of, I, I wanted to do a little bit of fact-checking because, I mean, sure. she had this very definitive idea of that Bardia and Fox were in agreement as far as this thing that had that had control over Psyche. And if you look at page 136, um, one, 136, then she's going back and forth and she says, um, what's your answer? And he says, I should say, speaking as a mortal man and likely enough, the gods know better I should say it was one whose face and form would give her little pleasure mm-hmm. if she saw them. So he starts with that, and then he continues, They call her the Bride of the Brute Lady, but it's time we were riding again. So he kind of is like, we have high reason to fear it. Yeah. Right. He, he implies that fear, not maybe not, and maybe a little bit of an impl- implication that he's malicious. Sure. That his intents are malicious, but... Yeah, he doesn't go full on and say, um, seem to assert as harshly as Fox does. Right. Well, so at I the mean... same time, you know, the the actual dialogue, you know, you read, uh, I should say it was one whose face and form would give her little pleasure if she saw them. That could, mm-hmm. you know, go a variety of ways. That could mean a it's, million different things. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. And again, that doesn't... it almost recalls sort of mm-hmm. the idea of, like, Moses at the burning bush. Oh, or, yeah. You know, anyone in the Old yeah. Testament who encounters God, like... I'm not or, worthy of this. I'm going to die. Israel saying, the, we can't which, see God anymore. Which, Moses, you have to talk to him. Yeah, right. Which, like, <laughs> By the is, way, you know, did you notice that when she talks to a god for the first time, she puts a veil over her face very soon after? Yes. 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 That's not an accident, C.S. <laughs> <Sarah> Lewis. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, face and form would give her a little pleasure. You could interpret that several different ways, including yeah. just that this is too awesome or too terrifying. And then Orwell is the one who comes back and says some frightful thing. 
Like, yeah. that's her response she, to that question. Again, that's yeah. her so interpretation she's, of Yeah, mm-hmm. she's, she's reading a very specific version mm-hmm. of what he said onto that. And then he does sort of tacitly agree. He says, you yeah. know, well, they called her the bride of the brute. So he's but sort then of, he's not willing to talk and, more and he's, about it. Right, he's, and then and, he immediately changes the subject. And, you know, so, so he, he tacitly is, is at least not disagreeing. But mm-hmm. why isn't he? Is right. it because and he agrees that it's some frightful thing? And or Bardia is because... isn't as eloquent as the fox either. So no. he doesn't have no. the words to, to explain yeah. what he's thinking about this. Bardia is very much right. on the side of the feeling and here. Even and if he had the words for it, he has enough reverence for it. Yes. And that's the bigger thing, that he fears it and therefore I don't touch it. Leave it alone. I'm not yeah. going to right. presume here. Mm-hmm. And... and Almost beyond that, though, like his whole purpose here is to get Orwell to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. So yes. he thinks that she she wants it to be frightful because she's afraid of it. Um, you know, if he wants her to to make her afraid of it, then he's gonna like give in to any interpretation of hers where it's fearful. <laughs> what you do, Michael? Michael? What you do? <laughs> what did you do, Michael? I don't want to say. Did you create a a disaster? I think Ethan just lost. I just, I just <laughs> said, did you create a disaster? Like Bardia's statement that we were analyzing up until you distracted us, that could have a variety of interpretations. Just because, and I, and just I was, because you heard the word and, that I didn't say. And I was merely reac- reacting because you licked your fingers, which is a very odd behavior. It is a very odd Considering behavior. that we don't have food in Especially here. considering that you made eye contact with both of us and then licked your fingers very slowly. Dang it, are there any winners to this? <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> Well, I know Ethan lost. <laughs> Wait, how did I lose? If I lost for that, you lost for what provoked it. That was outside my control. It was not outside your control. Or if it was, that constitutes a loss all by itself. And we are getting to that point where we should be starting to wrap up anyway. So if Michael and I both lost, I think we both need to suffer the punishment. I think we do. Okay. All right, so so we're stopping here, ending part one. Here. Indeed, indeed. Yes, and we're gonna start the start the wrap up here. Okay, so we've got a few minutes, I think. So. All right, so what I have for you, gentlemen, he's unzipping a backpack, gentle listener. Is it's a bomb! You might want to avert your eyes. Oh, I don't like this. I don't like this at all, gentlemen. What do you see before you? Uh, bag of death. I see a Greek <laughs> god. <laughs> I'm averting my eyes. I'm averting too holy. My eyes. What they what they see is a bag of marshmallows. Now, <laughs> now how, like how many of you how many of you have played the game Chubby Bunny? <laughs> what Michael said. Here, here's the deal. Um, we're gonna do Chubby Bunny, except for we're gonna start out right away with five marshmallows in each of your mouths. And both of you have to um, read a no, monologue no, from Shakespeare. No. I, don't like I, have I do a, have three complete I, works I of Shakespeare. I have picked a different right monologue there. for each of you. I have it on my phone right now. So, or or we could do that too. Either if you way, would rather read will be straight faster. from a book. Okay, I have them queued up right here. Okay. So, sure. who wants to go first? Okay, so Michael. I touched my nose Michael. faster than so Michael. So what you need to do is you need to narrating for the listener. Um, <laughs> you need to put five of these in your mouth, oh. and I might I might decide to put six in just uh, to see. 
because we're going to do a test run. Oh, and yeah. no, you test can't... run. Yeah, we don't. Do we don't have time to, okay. for each of us to be punished. Twice. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Put in. Put them in, Five and you have in. to keep them in. Okay. Yep. Ugh. One, two, three, four. <laughs> for someone who talks so much, you really don't have. <laughs> okay, maybe it needs to be four. Okay. Okay. So for four Michael, it'll be four. <laughs> All right. And you Michael's have to read. Stuff. You have to read this soliloquy from Hamlet, <laughs> from Act Two, Scene Two. <laughs> 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 this is one of the most disgusting things I have ever witnessed. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, okay, all right. We'll stop there. How far did you get? I couldn't quite tell. One sec. We'll allow you to eat your marshmallows. <laughs> We've called off the competition so that Michael would not die. Yes. I got as far as sterile promontory. <laughs> you got as far as sterile promontory. All right. We were making our way into the what a piece of work is man. Okay. And, okay. Yes. Okay. I couldn't so remember if that would be that one or to be zero promontory. Okay. Yeah, you got you got close to halfway through, which is good. Okay. <laughs> All right. And and you kind of got the bad end of the stick there because I had two pulled up and he stuck his finger on his nose. Yep. You kind of got the longer one. Okay. <laughs> so Ugh. four marshmallows. Very That's well. what he went. And you are doing. Antony from oh god um you were doing Antony from uh Julius Caesar um act 3 scene 1 um what to do 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 oh shut up I have a bigger mouth than put, you <laughs> put that in your mouth put it in your mouth stuff it in there okay so you're starting at oh pardon Oh, finally, I believe in Caesar is that I am meat. And Marshmallow fell out of his mouth. With me, butcher. <laughs> I went and joined with the nose man that interviews in the same time. <laughs> now, to the hand, says this person died. Ethan Ethan had one marshmallow hanging from his top mouth like it was like the big tooth from the from the doll character of the cast. It was a little beaverish. <laughs> it was a little beaverish. Alright. Oh, well, I believe I got about four lines into that monologue. <laughs> All right. So that that ever lived in the tide of times? Absolutely. <laughs> I have so much marshmallow crud on my phone. <laughs> That's not even funny. Yeah, Josiah, guess how much pity Michael and I feel for you. <laughs> None at all. Is the answer. Not, you just <laughs> ate the marshmallows in my mouth. 
That's so gross. They don't know that. They didn't know that. Now they do. Now the world knows. <laughs> or three other people who listen to this show. <laughs> My mom knows. Ethan's mom knows. You just lost again. Don't, isn't there immunity after you lose once? I don't know. Well, I technically you would have lost two since you talked about, you know, that, that thing too. That's you, you echoed me, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, let's so, end the anyhow. show. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> so that was... Wait, oh, okay. I, Michael was reaching for the computer and I assumed he was just ending it. Like that was <laughs> done. The last part. <laughs> so that's uh, the end of part one. Of Till We Have Faces. Um, I'm, like sorry, say, <laughs> I'm sorry, C.S. Lewis. I'm sorry, C.S. Lewis. We're all sorry. I'm sorry, William Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm sorry, who, anyone who did get this far in this episode. I'm also just generally sorry. Just, um, I would like to register that. Apologetic overall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was part one. I'd like to accuse have... the gods. <laughs> <laughs> let's take up our case. <laughs> Quick, Michael, let's get out of here. <laughs> Before the walls start turning into pictures and stuff. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, that was that was part one of Till We Have Faces. If you're not completely disgusted by the sight and sound of what Michael and I just did, join <laughs> us in two weeks. Yes, for part two. Two weeks. Two weeks for part two of, of Till We Have Faces. So, same book, uh, if you've already read it, which we paused to give you time to do earlier in the podcast. You had plenty of time in you that nanosecond. However, however much time you spent with your tape recorder stuff. Or if our colorful that. discussion inspired you to want to go out and read it. Yeah, that's true. Means. I mean, go yeah, read. two weeks is probably plenty, really, for this one. Yeah, it's not that long. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really sort of engrossing, which maybe we'll talk about next time. Probably. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, we'll be reading... Uh, Till we have faces again next next episode, um, which will be the same month because we we switch things on you. So well, technically it'll be, it'll be April. Well, you guys switch things. Well, whatever. On. I have you know, nothing Michael, to do with this. Time is wibbly wobbly, Ethan. It's a wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Look, I'm gonna just put you on thing. a blank hillside and let the uh, the destructor take care of you. That's okay. He'll and marry me, stay... and I will live happily ever after I'm... with him. <laughs> and when you tell me that I will be recording and I will have you finally committed um, <laughs> this is all part of my master plan so feel free to read along uh, if you'd like to join the discussion visit us at tapestryradio.org and leave your feedback in the contact section by the time this episode goes up maybe we will even have a Facebook group if not stay tuned for that I meant to do that earlier this week but then I fell deathly ill um, and nearly died and died nearly oh, died near- oh you didn't okay. death Sort of oh man! Dish. Yeah. Dang it! Um, if you like what we do here each month, please, please, please share with your friends. Tell your friends. You know, share us on Facebook, on Twitter, anywhere where sharing happens. Um, that's really the best way for a show with no advertising budget um, and no time to to get the word out for other people to hear these lovely dulcet these, tones these that you hear. Horrifying, horrifying perpetrations. Of ours. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this, review us on iTunes, share us on Facebook, share us on Twitter. 
Um, we are on Stitcher now, so I hear that yes. Stitcher is sort of easier for people with Android devices to download and, and listen than, than iTunes or some other platforms. Just avoid so, iTunes in general. They suck. Except for reviewing us. Except for reviewing us. Yeah. Review us on iTunes and then boycott iTunes. Yes. Um, the iTunes gods plan. are going to strike you down. <laughs> so, I will take up my case with the iTunes gods. Also, check out our other Tapestry Radio shows um, at tapestryradio.org. Uh, we have Intermission, our fiction podcast. Drama, backstage drama um, podcast. That's how I like to tell drama. people. Backstage, backstage drama. Backstage it's drama. basically what it is. Yeah. Which is really the most interesting stuff that happens in theater anyway. It, it really is. Um, mm -hmm. And we have now two, count them, two RPG-based podcasts. What? Right? We have Pokemon Rollout, which, as I understand, is still growing, going strong. It is. Um, it is. We appreciate all who already listen, and if you don't listen, please try it out. Yeah, you know, even if you don't like Pokemon, I'm sure... It's... I, I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, and um, we've also added a new podcast this month. Which is called Roll to Amble, and as I understand, I'm a bad network runner and haven't listened to it yet, but it's a D and D based. It's right? a Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition real play podcast. Okay. Yeah. Um so and so far, I don't know what their plans are at this point, but so far it's different from your other D and D RPG podcasts in the sense that they just play. And are naturally hilarious as they play. Uh, I've listened to their first episode, uh, and it's a long one, but give it a shot. It's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so good. So should we save our ratings for the next episode? Yes, sure. we should. Yes, yeah, so all right. The... Let's let's do that. Mm -hmm. um, so hang on the edge that? of your seats. You. You just have to wait two weeks, listen to our hour-long podcast again, and then we'll you still will know... be drinking. You we will, will still be for drinking. all two of those stocks. weeks. Two weeks we, straight. Yes. Tune in next time to hear us on the end of a two-week bender. Um, <laughs> you better have more up, than one bottle. Picking ourselves up from the rubble that our lives have become. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for listening, gentle listener. Uh, we are sorry for all the marshmallow-laced spit that we surely got on you. And go watch that off really quick. Yeah, just just go take a shower now. You just eat it. Which you probably have done <laughs> if you've listened to the rest of our podcasts anyway. Get shower pretty, after every episode. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Okay. All right, join us next time. Bye. Bye.
freaking password. <laughs> have you ever have you ever seen the Homestar Runner cartoon for Mother's Day? I don't think so. <laughs> there, there's this obscure cartoon of Homestar Runner for Mother's Day uh-huh. where it's a stage and Homestar Runner comes out and says, "And now time for a special punishment. Uh, I, I mean message from Strong Bad." <laughs> and, and he walks behind the curtain and he's like, "Strong Bad, go out there." And Strong like, "No, look how many people are out there." <laughs> no, you said you had to. And, and then they push him out, and he's in a little blue sailor's outfit <laughs> with a little hat and everything, holding a lollipop. And he's out there, and they're like, go on. And he's like, <laughs> and they're like, try it again. <laughs> we can't hear you. Happy freaking Mother's Day! <laughs> Until next time. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion obambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours.